And we're back. Welcome to the Comics Course. This is a Miskatonic remote education program offering of Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History. Fair known as the Comics Course. I am your lecturer, Professor Hamby, here with my ever-suffering T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Now, comicscourse.org is where you can find our reading lists and other information. I'm still trying to buff it up into something prettier. Comicscourse.captivate.fm is where you can find all the episodes and reading lists. Um, well, not reading lists. Reading lists are on the website, but playlists that are organized by theme. For example, a history of comics playlist, which will include today's episode. You can also get a hold of me on Twitter as Prof Hamby. I'm trying to be more active on there. So today we're talking about the history of image comics, which is a topic you requested, Rowan. So... Uh, when you think of Image Comics, what do you think of? What do I think of? I think of independent comics. And, and I think that's a good idea. I think it's good to think of them that way. So we talked about Dark Horse the other day, and Dark Horse is very much a quasi-traditional publisher arrangement. Image, in some ways, is a bunch of Dark Horses. And I'll talk about what I mean by that. Now, to understand what made Image Comics happen, I want you to take your mind back to the 1990s. Those days of everything's extreme. The days of Mountain Dew and hang gliding. You look like you have a thought, but you're eating a red vine. We also have Japanese raspberry Kit Kats here because, yay. You're still chewing a red vine. I was saying, you think Mountain Dew, like, filmed that big industry? Well, no, there was a thing about Mountain Dew in the 90s. You weren't there because you're a fetus. Um even sure I was that yet. You weren't, you know, not based on your age. Anyway, uh, it, it was the time of when people were like, let's be extreme. And, you know, um, it, it was a time that most of us prefer to put out of our minds in terms of comics. I mean, I tragically will never forget the onk shaping daggers on Dr. Fate's Pandolero's chest. Oh my God. What? It's just sad. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm. This is post-traumatic stress. So let's just move past it. I, I tried that. My therapist fired me. Look, we had a ninety-minute argument about what's the definition of a furry, and finally they yelled at me and just said to get out. And then I pointed out we were doing a meeting by Zoom. Um, I, I tried calling the office and signing back up but they said they had quit their profession and were moving to the Northeast to become a logger with a Canadian uh, forestry company. Like that? Yeah. So I'm beginning to worry because that's the fifth therapist I've had that's done that. I'm beginning to worry that I might be the common factor. <laughs> but then I remember they all chose to become therapists, and surely that's a bigger you know, impact on their life choice than me. Nope. Um, no. Anyway... You know, it was a big impact on the people who ended up founding Image Comics back in 1992. It's that they wanted to get paid. Now, we have talked about how there was sort of the rise of the celebrity comic book creator. It really started, I would argue, in the late 1970s. But by the 1980s and then definitely 90s, people went out and bought your comics because of who you were. There were people who didn't care about X-Men but would still read any book drawn by Jim Lee um, or written by Chris Claremont or whatever. 
So in the 1980s, DC and Marvel had gotten together and said, you know, we're going to lose these people to places like Malibu where they can publish their own stuff. Um, but, uh, I mean, we can't let them own the characters. But what we can do is give them a kickback on sales. You know, we go to a second printing and we print 100,000 more and then the writer can get this and the artist can get that. And we can do some, you know, profit sharing that way with things that do really well. And some of them did. I mean, there was a period of time where working on an X-Men title was essentially printing money. Um, I'm pretty sure at one point in history, Chris Claremont bought a plane just to prove he could for writing comics. I think he's actually said that in interviews. That he wasn't having kids or something, so he decided why not buy a plane. Ah, uh, yes. No kids equals plane. All right. So, so it was nice that they were getting money on the back end, but there was still a big problem. Now, what generates more money than anything else in the comic book world? Merchandising? Bingo! See, it's simple. I mean... You you walk into a merchandise, a general goods store, like, say, a Target or something, and you're going to see Batman coffee cups, and you're going to see Superman tumblers. You're going to see Wonder Woman underwear. You're going to... Well, no, seriously. I mean, you can go and find, you know, like, you know, whole packs of superheroine-themed underwear. Mm -hmm. You know, as well as you can male-themed ones for boys and stuff. I mean, I mean... The boys could wear the female ones. I mean, I'm not judging. They can decide whatever they want to be. I mean, I would think that it would chafe a little, but, you know, whatever. I'm not judging. Um, and they wanted to get their, you know, money out of all that, which was just never going to happen at Marvel or DC. I mean, it's nice that you came on and wrote Batman and helped make it super popular, but that Batman Tumblr cup with the Batman logo is not traceable to how you've helped to make the title more popular. So you're not going to get paid off it. So they decided, you know what, let's just get together and do our own thing. Now, the core group apparently was originally Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarland, um, Jim Valentino, and Eric Larson. Now, Eric Larson, I want to talk about each of the four of those a little bit and what they were doing. Eric Larson was working on Spider-Man, I believe. I think he might have done some work on some X titles. Um, and he was popular, although what he's been known for since leaving and setting up an image is his title Savage Dragon, which is very long-running independent. It's not one I've ever personally gotten into, but I know a lot of people who absolutely love it, and it's apparently really good at balancing action and storytelling. And just considered generally a fun title by people. Now, Valentino uh, wasn't a huge name in the industry, but certainly well-established. He had worked on some X-Men titles at that point, I believe, as well. But he also had some of his own publishing experience at Malibu. I think it was at Malibu. And so he was able to come in with some knowledge that really benefited the others. Then Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane was the wonder kid of the time in many ways. He was, I forget what his original sport was, but he was kind of seen by many as a jock. His main interest had been sports, I think baseball, perhaps. And then when that career didn't work out for him in college, he decided to teach himself how to draw comics and start doing comic books. And he worked on several properties, but it was really Spider-Man that exploded for him. 
And he was given his own Spider-Man title in part because he wanted creative freedom to write. Now, it turned out he was a really bad writer. But he did get better at it over time, and his craft of it got better. But his art was just amazing. It showed a fluidity. You never saw Spider-Man contort himself while he jumped like that before. You never saw the webs looking so organic and sticky and everywhere before. And people would just read anything Todd McFarlane was drawing. And then, of course, there was Lee Field. Oh, my God, Lee Field. Now, I have previously mentioned burning stacks of Rob Lee Field comics to stay warm when it gets cold. And he was super popular. He, uh, when he started at Image, he started a title series called Young Bloods. But before this, he'd been doing X Factor and various X Men books. And his general attitude was you know, the reason kids aren't reading comics anymore is because they're not extreme enough. All the arm muscles have got to be extreme. And when you got arm muscles, you should put like a band on it. And if you have a waist, you need pockets, lots of pockets, hundreds of pockets, millions of pockets. Batman had a bat belt. You got 20 bat belts on that motherfucker. You got another arm over here. Put a pocket on the arm. Um, so like a band and a pocket. Yeah, pockets. And you need to be extreme with it. Yeah, we could use that CPS on Perlman's pants. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> right? But... Everything was extreme. Everything was hyper-muscular. Everybody, nobody ever stood around in a Rob Leefield comic. They were always, like, bending over, muscle-flexing, ready to pounce, hyper-energetic. Um, the styles were just ridiculous. I mean, the guys didn't look muscular. They all looked like serious, you know, uh, roid abusers. Like, they were taking lots of hardcore synthetic steroids and pumping themselves up constantly. I mean, seriously, these guys looked like if they accidentally pissed in the same city as the Olympics that they'd disqualify an entire summer run. Um, but, but, I mean, his stuff was popular, no doubt about it. Um, I don't think it's maintained the same, same level of popularity, but, I mean, he certainly still has... Uh, people that follow him. But these four, Lee Field, McFarland, Valentino, Larson, they got together and they talked to Malibu. And Valentino's the one that recommended that they hire Malibu for all their internal processes, you know, basically their accounting and to run the business office. And not that they were becoming part of Malibu, but just hiring them to help them get off the ground. And Malibu did do this for a year or two. Probably also help them with contracts and stuff. Now, why would Malibu do this, even if it didn't directly benefit them by becoming part of the Malibu universe? Well, Malibu had a history of helping people publish their own creator-owned projects anyway, and I suspect it was partially a way of flipping off Marvel and DC. Like, you know, Malibu may not be the big two, but the big two won't be quite the big two anymore either if they lose a bunch of top-end talent. It's kind of a way of leveling the playing field, right? Mm -hmm. Now, they needed some other blood for this. So one of the people they approached was Jim Lee. Now, Jim Lee had been doing X-Men at the time. Jim Lee's art was definitely part of what inspired the X-Men. Uh, 
if you search for Jim Lee art right now, you're going to find a lot of Superman and Wonder Woman stuff because Jim Lee did eventually leave uh, Image. In fact, Jim Lee later, I'll talk about this more later, but he later sold his Image properties to DC, uh, Wildstorm Studios. And Jim Lee has always kind of been a company man. That was one of the reasons, however, the Image founders wanted him. You know, people like McFarlane, McFarlane was known to be a jock and smug about things and like, you know, just have an attitude. Um, Rob Leefield was known to have this attitude of, well, of course I'm the best, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, sales, you know, show. Um, and so, I mean, these were kind of some of the bad boys. Jim, if they were the bad boys, though, Jim Lee was the overachieving good kid. Jim Lee was the company man. He was loyal. You know, just because a couple of knuckleheads go and do something crazy, you know, maybe you'll just sit back and ignore it. But when the good guy does it, when the guy who doesn't want to make waves, the guy who isn't an egotist does it, then people step up and take notice. And that's why they wanted Jim Lee on board. And according to the story... They only got him on board because Marvel did something amazingly stupid. What's that? So they were flying Jim Lee around to conventions for things, right? What did you do? Um, and they flew him out for a convention somewhere. I forget where. I think maybe San Diego Comic-Con somewhere. I don't know, but somewhere important. Mm -hmm. And he wanted his wife to go with him. Aww. And they threw, and they said they would not play, pay for her flight. What? So... Basically, for a 200... Now, Jim Lee, as I am told by people who know him, is a nice guy. Not a internet nice guy, but a genuinely nice guy. And the kind of guy who is loyal and will look out for you, and you look out for him, and he's going to look out for you. He plays fair. He was making Marvel a ton of money. He was working, you know, not really... not. I, I mean, he's flying around doing conventions for Marvel... And it's not like, you know, he's really being compensated for it. He asked for, was probably like, what, a $200, $250 ticket? And over there, penny pinching at the time, and there was a penny pincher running the company at the time. Sorry, I speak with my hands and I ran into the mic stand. Um, over that, they probably lost Jim Lee, uh, which is stupid. Because they, they wouldn't fly out the man's wife. Right. And Jim Lee, I mean, his art is just amazing. I mean, DC's even posted, uh, uh, printed portfolios of his work. He is just astounding. Yeah. God, that's gorgeous. He has, I believe, done Twitch streams showing his drawing process also. And then, you know, sold off the art to charity and stuff. This is him here. I've never met Jim Lee. I do know people that have met him. And they tell me he's just a great guy. He seems like a nice guy. So he's the one they wanted to bring in. They also wanted to bring in a guy named Mark Silvestri. Now, Mark Silvestri had done a number of things, but he had big ambitions, and he has a big part to play in the future of Image Comics as well. But so this was the group, Eric Larson, Jim Lee, Rob Leefield, Tom Mc Todd McFarlane, uh, Wills Portaccio, uh, Mark Silvestri, and Jim Valentino. Uh, uh, Portaccio, I didn't really mention. He's a relatively minor name compared to some of those others, um, but he is from 
oh, I feel like I'm about to say this wrong. Um, I can't think of the country he's from right now. Philippines. Philippines. It was right on the tip of my tongue. He's a Filipino. Uh, and he was kind of talked into joining by Jim Lee, who apparently was a good friend of his. So how do they decide to handle this creation of Image Comics? Could they do it really stealthily, or should they three-stooge, punch people in the eyes, and slap their face? They three-stooged this shit. Um, specifically, a group of them that included McFarlane and Leefield uh, and Lost Larson and I think Valentino went to the Marvel offices, basically said, suck our dicks, turned around, walked to D.C., the rumor mill was, because they were literally across the street from each other. Oh, wait, really? The Marvel people watched them leave. DC folks were super excited. <laughs> they walk in, they go to DC, and it's like, no, we're not here for jobs. We're just here to tell you we're not signing up to work with you either. Damn. Mic drop and left. So, Yeah. This is what happened. And they had some support also from the writer, Chris Claremont, um, who had been active in vocalizing, uh, but probably, A, too much of a company man to leave. And I don't know if people would have bought a title just because it was written by Chris Claremont. Notice that most of those names are artists, and artists first and foremost. And people will buy books for their art that sometimes they want for their writing which I think is stupid, and I think people have gotten, gotten better about. I do think there are people that definitely can sell books just on the basis of their writing now, like James Tinney and the Fourth, um, Tom King, you know, some others. And I would have thought that would have been true of Chris Claremont back then, but maybe he didn't quite want to make the jump. Chris Claremont, by the way, basically reinvented the X-Men and made it the property that Marvel could live off of for decades, even when they were screwing everything else up. Maybe he really wanted to finish that. Yeah, well, that's a whole interesting history in its own right. We won't go into that right now. Um, but they... So Image decided to have basically two rules that they found their company on. One is that the Image itself would not own any creator's work. Only the creator did. Image would own nothing except the company's trademarks, its name, and logo, and whatever they needed for internal operations. So Image was just just a publisher. Right. And in really some ways, just kind of a bookkeeper. But it did take care of the publishing part too. But then each of those founders created their own studio. Mm -hmm. And each would operate entirely independent. No, That's rule number two. No image partner would interfere creatively or financially with any other partner's work. Now, this became a, part of a point of contention later. So, image is just that clearinghouse at the center. Everybody can do their own thing. Image helps take care of the contracts with the publishers and the bookkeeping. But all it owns is the image name and the image logo. And the heads of these studios own partnership in image. Right. So if Todd McFarlane one day went, screw this, I'm not going to publish Spawn at Image Comics anymore, he could walk away and set up a new publishing company. He could sell it to Marvel or DC. He could do whatever he wants because he owns it outright, no complications. Now, Todd McFarlane is one of those that never really branched out on his name. 
legally he set up Todd McFarlane Productions. But if you buy an image of uh, uh, issue of Spawn published by Image, it just has the Image logo at the top. If you look inside on the legalese on the publication notice page, it'll say Todd McFarlane Productions. But on the cover dress, uh, <coughs> all you get is the Image logo. He wasn't trying hard to crush his own. No. Mean And largely, Eric Larson has done the same with Savage Dragon. Technically, that's highbrow entertainment. Uh, meanwhile, others very prominently displayed their logo, specifically Mark Silvestri when he founded Top Cow and Jim Lee with Wildstorm. Now, Jim Lee eventually left, um, but he was one of the early big names there that drew people, specifically... Uh, the Wild Wildcats was the first title he published, um, and Wild Storm was partially named after that, and it was a big seller. In fact, the three big title, the uh, four big titles at launch were Lee Field's Young Blood, which was basically a reskinned X Force, Larson's Savage Dragon, which is still running, uh, Todd McFarlane's Spawn, which is still running, and Jim Lee's Wildcats. Wildcats is now owned by DC, by the way, um. And I can talk, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But one of the early challenges all these studios had is they had trouble getting their stuff out. And it became so legendary that when they had like a 25th anniversary thing at Comic-Con for the founders to get together and talk about the founding of the company, one of them was late. And the person running the mic said, well, isn't this an appropriate way to talk about the founding of Image Comics? <laughs> It was pathetic. So, you know, one of the things these guys hadn't liked were the administrative crew at Marvel and DC being like, hey, we got to get this book to press. Get me my shit. You got to get your shit done. We got a schedule to run. Motherfucker. Motherfucker. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Art will come when I decide it's done. Image Comics. Um... We've solicited for issues seven, eight, and nine. Um, when are you going to finish issue two? I'm an artiste, and I'm not feeling it. I, I suggest you pull your artiste tools out of your ass and draw some fucking shit, because you're not going to pay your bills at this rate. And, and this is really what was happening. I mean, c comics uh, uh, stores would solicit, you know, their catalogs would come in from Diamond and be like, oh, well, issue number nine of Youngbloods is supposed to be out. That sells well. I'll go ahead and pick a bunch up. But seven doesn't show up, eight doesn't show up, nine doesn't show up. Uh, it, it became a major problem, so much so that they ended up hiring in 1993. The company was founded in 92, so a year later, they're hiring this guy named Larry Martyr, who had experience to help direct them. And basically, he had to institute rules. This is one of his most famous rules. They would no longer allow a solicitation for a comic to go out until the art was done. Because the artists were the problem. And so now we often had books go months and months and months between issue solicitations. It was pure chaos. Critics had a field day. Fans got frustrated and pissed. And it created an additional sort of interesting complication because some of these people still wanted to work for Marvel and DC. And there was pressure for them not to do so anymore. 
Um, this happened with Robert Kirkman, who later joined the company, um, later became one of the partners at Image. And Todd McFarlane explained it this way, apparently, to Kirkman, according to an interview they did. He said, he went to Kirkman and said, look, if you write three comics, one for yourself that's creator-owned here at Marvel, and you write, I mean, sorry, here at Image, and then you write one for Marvel and one for DC, the simple fact is, people who love your writing will feel like they've gotten their fix with the Marvel or DC, and they won't buy your creator-owned stuff. You need to either go into it 100% or not at all. And this is a sentiment others have had. I mean, um, Stefan Sajic has said it's not worth doing non-creator-owned stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently Kirkman found that argument valid because he ended up at Image, and in fact, becoming a partner. If you don't know the name Robert Kirkman, uh, I'm sure you know <coughs> his single most popular comic, The Walking Dead. Uh, that resonated with you, huh? Yes, yeah. that Walking Dead, that Robert Kirkman. I uh, bet he's happy he sticks with that now. Which is published at Image, right? Now, during all this time, you know, some other people came and went. It wasn't completely static. Um, as I mentioned, Jim Lee ended up leaving eventually. He left in, oh, geez, 1999, I think, he left. Um, no, that's probably not right. Uh, actually, I should mention here, uh, before Jim Lee left in 1996, Top Cow actually left for a while, uh, Mark Silvestri. I mentioned Stefan Sajic. By the way, he was published by Top Cow originally. He worked on properties like The Darkness. And Silvestri Studio um, became very popular for doing a variety of books uh, like The Darkness, Witchblade. Um, I'm trying to think, several others. I think Cyberforce might have been one of his. Anyway, he created a whole universe. Uh, Michael Turner published Fathom there. This whole universe of titles happened at uh, Top Cow, and he began opening his doors to publishing stuff for other independent artists. Now, that brought some criticism because people said, Well, isn't that what Marvel and DC do? And now you're just recreating the wheel. But the attitude of, like, say, Silvestri was, I'm going to let them still own their stuff. I'm still representing the artists, but they don't have the big name that I did to set up my own studio. And in fact, over the years, that became part of the focus of what they started calling Image Central. Ignore the hounds. I'm pretty sure that's a sophomore this time. The sophomores usually are a little more aged, so they fight over them a little bit more. They don't come apart quite as easily, but, you know, the hounds really find them a nice treat. Yeah, because um, normally by then they're smart enough to not go out in the courtyard. Right. So it's a nice treat. So Larry Martyr stayed there a number of years. He was His position was essentially taken over by other creative staff. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Who, oh, yeah, it was Valentino. Valentino took over for Martyr after he left. Martyr stayed there about six years uh, until 1999. Valentino took over as president. Again, he had some publishing background himself. And one of his big contributions was what he called Image Central. Image Central was that uh, unifying body that handled the paperwork, the finances, the actual publishing. 
And Valentino thought one of the things that would be really valuable with Image Central would be to bring in some of those other names. Now, obviously, somebody like Mark Silvestri had already worked with people like Turner at his own studio, Top Cow. But people began saying, well, <coughs> what if we could take some of this newer talent and just let them publish directly from Image? They don't have to go through your studio. They can publish directly under the same sort of terms you do. And so they've made that happen for people. Now, uh, Valentino did leave that position in 2004. He still operates a studio with. But Eric Larson took over as publisher uh, until from 2004, I think, to eight, And then 2008, they promoted somebody from within named Eric Stevenson to take it over. And in that time, what we saw was the both rise and fall of Image Comics. Now, Image Comics uh, catapulted to the number three company behind Marvel and DC right after they were founded in the early 90s. By the 2000s, we'd seen them slide down. I mean, arguably, both Dark Horse and IDW were bigger than Image by, say, 2010. Uh, but Image still offered their absolutely high-end, you-own-everything opportunities. And this began to show off for people other than the core owners, which at this point they had added uh, Robert Kirkman to. But it saw them publishing things like Chew, the story about the guy that could read the history of things he ate, uh, an Asian guy. A really interesting series. Uh, Morning Glories, which I know a lot of feminists have called a really, you know, interesting work. I've not read it myself. The Manhattan Project Saga. Saga is one of the most loved comic series out there. Manhattan hmm? Project was a comic book? The Manhattan Projects. This was a particular series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Bitter, Root, Bitter Root, which is a series about African-Americans fighting demon spirits. Uh, which I think is really, really good. King of Spies is being done right now. It's a hard-boiled series, spy series by Mark Miller. It's basically about a spy who finds out he's about to die, but he decides to go fix what he thinks are all the problem people in the world, and by fix, assassinate. Uh, Crowded, which is really good. Undiscovered Country, which is where America's built a wall and isolated itself, and now centuries later, you know, people kind of have to go find out what happened inside the country. Oh, God, what did we do? Right. Um, and, and on and on and on. Um, Bone, which we've talked about, was published by Image Comics under this arrangement with Jeff Smith. Yep. So this diversification really helped. They may not have been selling the raw numbers to direct market that they were, but they really, in a lot of ways, found their soul you know, helping these diverse voices that would have never been published by DC or Marvel, much less let them continue to own their property, uh, continue. And, <coughs> you know, people aren't talking about them as the savior of comics anymore, but I think in some ways they kind of saved comics. I think they and Dark Horse are really, you know, two of the most important companies out there. If Marvel and DC disappeared tomorrow, I'd be sad to see it. There's stuff published by both of them I like, um, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't break my heart. You know, just Image and Dark Horse are actually publishing the majority of the American-made comics I read, which is probably not surprising to anybody. 
Um, oh, I was going to mention, you know, people that did end up leaving Dark Horse, uh, leaving Image Comics. Uh, Lee did sell in 99. Okay. And the Wildstorm uh, company went defunct in 2010. However, in 2011, DC had one of their mini reboots and actually integrated the Wildstorm characters directly into the DC mythology. And as an imprint, it was revived in 2017. A couple of interesting notes from the Wildstorm run over the years. One, they were the ones that originally published Gen 13, which I guess means DC owns them now. Uh, Gen 13 was the Runaways before the Runaways existed. And it was a great, great title. Um, I don't want them to publish a reboot of it because they'd make it suck. Uh, the Midnighter who is now one of the LGBTQ icons of the DC Universe, originally came over from Wildstorm. Uh, the Authority, they recently rebooted a Superman in the Authority series at DC last year. So we do see Wildstorm properties surviving on in DC. And uh, Jim Lee is one of the chief, uh, co-chief creative officers at DC. So, I mean, he's a DC guy uh, through and through. And we'd have a very different comic book world if Marvel had you know, ponied up 250 bucks for his wife's ticket. <laughs> Bizarre world, you know. It's, it's weird that that's where they put their foot down on. Right, right. Um, oh, I, I just want to mention some other stuff. Uh, Sam Keith's The Max was published at Image, one of the greatest comic book series of all time, period. Um, Jay Lee's Hellshock, which is very beloved. Astro City by Alex Ross. We're going to have to do Astro City... Uh, on the lecture sometime. It's just mind-blowing. Uh, Colleen Doran, who is a casual Twitter acquaintance of mine, she's done a lot of art uh, properties over the years, probably became most famous for doing the Element Girl issue of Sandman for Neil, with Neil Gaiman back in the day. But her Distant Soil is just amazing, and I recommend it to uh, people who are interested in really well-thought-out sci-fi comics. And if they're willing to wait the extremely long periods of time in between each issue because she is a perfectionist and does amazing stuff. Um, and I'm skimming through some brief notes right here. There was a, some conflict early on in its history, and I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody actually left Image early on because there was a fight. Um, and I am not finding it in my notes right now. But basically, one of the founders uh, was considered to be an, having a conflict of interest. They had a publication company outside of Image. They were also publishing things from. And they had a conflict with, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that it was Mark Silvestri. And I think Top Cow left Image for, I don't know, maybe six months or so. And then this person left, and I want to say it was Rob Leefield, that Rob Leefield was doing it with his Extreme Studios. Um, and then after Rob Leefield permanently left Image, that Silvestri and Top Cow came back. And I want to say this was in the late 90s, perhaps. But anyway, there we go. That is the very brief history of Image. A bunch of creators very full of themselves, but maybe accurately so, at least in terms of market clout, decided to start their own company. They had a whole bunch of, you know, hey, we're going to change the world. And then really all they did was make their own pockets thicker. But then somehow, like 
10, 15 years later, they do start changing the world and publishing amazing stuff include uh, outside their own and helping a lot of creators with things like Saga, Chu, so on, as well as being a home for established superstars like Sylvester, Todd McFarlane, Robert Kirkman. Um, so does that answer your questions? Yes. Anything else you want to know or ask? Okay, so what do you want for the next one? I mean, if you're still interested in American companies, we can always talk about Malibu or Valiant or CrossGen. I was just about to say, we've mentioned Malibu quite a few times in this one. You, you want to talk a little bit about the history of Malibu next time? Okay, we'll do that. So next week, next Thursday, join us for the history of Malibu. However, on the Monday before that, join us for Volume 3 of Reginald Hudlin's run on Black Panther. And whatever you do... Keep reading comics. Bye.